0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Charlie Angus is um, NDP member of Parliament, of course, for many years, and the ethics critic for the, uh, the party. He sits on both the Finance Committee and the Ethics Committee, and we've talked to Charlie over the last number of weeks about developments which have taken place, including the testimony for 90 minutes by the Prime Minister before the Finance Committee. Charlie, thanks for coming back on the show this weekend, and what does the proroguing of Parliament by Trudeau speak to you about?
2: Well, Roy, <laughs> uh, I I've, I expected a lot of things, but for the Prime Minister to cut and run at this point uh, shows how deep they are in the scandal, but it also shows how much they're willing to jettison in terms of the, the credibility that the Prime Minister rebuilt. I mean, he really, he lost his majority because of the SNC scandal and his treatment of Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And when COVID hit, he really seemed to get uh, his game on. He was reassuring, steady as she goes, People around the world were saying, "Look at Canada. Look at how they're being. They're, they're typical Canadians. They're, you know, they're facing the tough thing. The Prime Minister, of course, it was a, a press conference, but every day he was out there. And now this, uh, coming into September, uh, with tens of thousands of students going back to school, more and more uncertainty about the economy. He skips town. <laughs> he shuts and he shuts the committees down." I, Roy, I just I, what do you say to that? It's, it's. I, I'm still trying to find the words.
0: And this is the week after he went surfing for. Was it? What, didn't he go surfing for four days when he well, should have been actually appearing before the ethics committee?
2: Well, one of the things that we had negotiated with the prime minister was that Parliament would sit in the summer, which is unprecedented. Unprecedented that Parliament would sit. But that we we agreed that we needed a specific amount of set. Set days in Parliament in the summer because of the seriousness of the pandemic. Um, he skipped the last one. He, he didn't show up uh, when he should have been. And that was also Andrew Shear's last day as, as opposition leader. And, you know, you don't have to like each other as leaders you know, across party lines, but I, I thought that was just a lack of respect. He just skipped town as though it didn't matter. But what we now know is he was trying to avoid answering uh, the, the widening nature of the scandal. So this week we are supposed to be back in Parliament asking really important questions about the economy, about the scandal, about being prepared for the next, um, you know, the next phase of dealing with COVID. And he shut it all down so that he could shut down the ethics and finance committees' work. So he shut down everything that's being dealt with in terms of COVID in order to avoid uh, questions about the the absolute at uh, the huge ethical breaches that have happened under
3: his watch
0: you know you'd think given everything that he said that he would want to be dealing with the committees to set the record straight so everybody understands that he did nothing wrong this is the way he's positioned it were you charlie as the ethics committee getting close to something justin trudeau didn't want to pursue and i ask that because i'm thinking of the heavily redacted documents your committee received from the Liberal government as you were investigating Trudeau and Morneau, not recusing themselves from cabinet discussions, about that federal government $912 million student grant program, the administration of which was sole source to WE Charities. Were you getting close to something, do you think?
3: Well,
2: Roy, um, th- those 10,000 pages of documents, sure, a lot of them are redacted, but what we see in those documents is is mismanagement uh, at the highest level in order to secure this deal for the Kielberger organization. I think there was a number of key findings, and we're still, we're still going through it and piecing it all together to figure out how this thing, uh, this idiotic scheme came down. But what we found out was that Bill Morneau was very closely involved. I mean, the line that they, him and the Kielbergers were besties, um, that this was being pushed from Morneau. Well, obviously Morneau had to go for the high jump, so the government bought themselves some time by getting rid of him. Uh, but it also raises questions about Bartish Chagger and that key April 17th meeting, which, you know, when my colleague Michael Barrett asked her at finance, did you meet with the Kielbergers or the WE organization before this was brought to cabinet? And she she didn't lie. She clearly misrepresented. She said, I had no discussions about the Canada uh, uh, Student service grant. So she didn't say she hadn't met with them. We found out later she had met. But that meeting on April 17th, from those documents, she did discuss what became that program and cued the Kielbergers in. So that's two key ministers involved, I think, in setting this up. And there's so much more. I mean, the fact that the Kielbergers were taking their their proposals to the top bureaucrats and ministers showing pictures of the Trudeaus uh, in their in their documents. Uh, that puts I think the prime minister in a serious conflict. It's not that the prime minister was showing the the pictures, but they were using the family clearly to get that contract and that puts the prime minister under section 5 the conflict of interest act where he has to have his personal um, dealings and his personal um, he needs to set his private life in a in a manner that he's not subject this kind of uh, influence and conflict, and and there they were putting the picture of Margaret Trudeau and Sophie as part of their package to seal a nine hundred million dollar
0: deal. Bad, bad stuff. There's so many questions. Um, you just mentioned at the beginning of your answer, you talked about the uh, the email where the um, finance minister and and uh, the Morno's office were described as besties. Yes. is is there are there any other sidebar issues that that are floating close to the surface that you're interested in
1: well
2: the fact there's i mean it was such a bad scheme, but I think what was clear, Roy, is that you know they keep throwing the the civil service under the bus, but the civil service knew what they, what was to be pleasing to their political leaders it's it's morno it's Chagger, and ultimately it's justin Trudeau but this this first deal it goes from they're gonna they're gonna get this small deal um, entrepreneurship thing and they say no no let's do this service grant thing and then suddenly there's nine hundred million on the table and they say well how many students can you deal with? And we says we will take ten thousand students right off the top. <laughs> what are you gonna do with ten thousand students in one organization? It it seems Roy that they wanted so badly to get this out the door. And then we are saying, well, we've got 50 organizations that will work with us, a number of which have come forward and said we weren't going to have anything to do with it. But a lot of these organizations came from the federal government. So the federal government was going along with something that was so obviously not thought through and something that couldn't have been delivered. And right up, you know, Roy, last week when we had, you know, the Clerk of the Privy Council saying, we still believe that this program would have worked. When you look at the documents, it is bizarre. It's it's a ridiculous scheme. Yeah.
0: Uh, Charlie, has the bus gone or is it circling around the block? <laughs>
2: well, Roy, there's, uh, there's so many things that still need to be dealt with here. I think Barters Chagler is going to have a lot more explaining to do. The prime minister still needs a lot more explaining to do. And we're waiting for them you know, the bombshells to drop from the ethics commissioner. And let's not change the subject here. But Now we find out Katie Telford's husband, Rob Silver, was calling into the finance office trying to help his company. Well, that's what the, that's what the reports are. If that's the case, then that's improper lobbying. And so how does Katie Telford stay in that job if her husband was using his connection? So it's like how sure,
0: how sure are we about that?
2: Well, we don't know. We're only going on what's we've been what been reported. Uh, the Globe and Mail was looking into it. Vice has the story. Um, the lobbying commissioner is looking into it. But if it's true that he was calling in, here's a guy who knows the law. He knows all about the Lobbying Act. If he's calling in and he's the husband of the chief of staff to the prime minister, and he's calling in to make a deal to get his business uh, a better opportunity in the COVID thing, you can't stay in that position. So and
0: The big word there is like, if, right? Sorry, the, the big little word is if. And, and yeah,
2: it's, it's all down to if, but that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty damning accusation to make in the middle of this crisis. So how does Katie Telford stay in that position? So he's lost his finance minister. He lost last time the clerk of the Privy Council. He lost his uh, his right-hand Gerald Butts. He lost his two of his strongest cabinet women because of the ethics scandals. If he loses Katie Telford it's like we're going to have to send in like remedial um support (laughs) to teach this guy that in the prime minister's office they have to follow the rule of the land and the law of the land and that's that's what's gotten him into so much trouble it's just that refusal to uh follow basic common sense uh rules about accountability and conflict of interest
0: michael barrett is the Conservative Party ethics critic, who also wrote a letter to the RCMP Commissioner, Brenda Lucky, requesting a criminal investigation of Mr. Trudeau and the we issue under Section 121 of the Criminal Code, as I understand it. Mr. Barrett, thanks for coming back on the program. Uh, what exactly were you asking asking the, the RCMP Commissioner to do? What is Section 121?
4: Well, the, um, the Criminal Code says that... Uh, that you know committing a fraud on the government uh, uh, essentially is uh, is not something that we tolerate here in in Canada and so um the uh the the circumstances surrounding uh, the 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 awarding of government contracts uh does present the potential where uh influence or gifts can be exchanged uh in a way that would give uh favor uh, curry favor uh, by the organization now I'm I'm being incredibly careful with my words because um, we've seen that the we organization has responded even to some journalists uh, questions with cease and desist letters or, or lawyers letters so um, well while, while I have written to the um, to the RCMP uh, we have not received confirmation that they are uh, that they have commenced an investigation uh, we understand though that they've told uh, media outlets this week that that um, they're they're examining the situation so it sounds like it's in a in, in a preliminary steps but but basically um uh offering a reward or advantage or a benefit is uh is kind of the crux of that section of the criminal code and uh what we asked the commissioner to have to have her investigators look into
0: all right was the ethics committee and i had your committee colleague charlie angus on a little earlier in the hour was the ethics committee, and I asked them the same question, and perhaps the finance committee, on the cusp of discovering and maybe publicizing information Mr. Trudeau didn't want in the uh, public arena.
4: Well, I think that there's obviously uh, information that uh, that Justin Trudeau doesn't want to have come forward uh, with respect to the documents that were received—the five thousand pages. Um, that's you know, you, you hear the term "document dump." This is it. Uh, there's there's lots of duplication in there to to try and bog down the people going through it. Uh, lots of redacted information and very and some of the redactions are very curious uh, when you see them. You know we see that there's one email. It's from uh, the ESDC Minister Carla Qualtro, who should have been uh, you know for one would for all intents and purposes she should have been the minister that uh, administered the uh, this this failed. CSSG program uh, it, it was ultimately uh, signed by uh, Bar, uh, Minister Bardas Chagger so we, so we have this email from Carla Queltro and it's to her uh, to her deputy and the emails fully blacked out and then at the bottom you just see her signature block now we've seen in these documents things like uh, you know and while this minister had said no I had nothing to do with it um, that there were briefings to uh, uh to these to these ministers and and we see these inconsistencies in the stories that were presented by the Prime Minister by the Kielberger brothers uh, by Minister Checker, by Minister Morneau, and on and on and on and so uh, now we 're not in a position where we can uh, where we can uh, essentially uh, hold that information up and, and say to any of these individuals, Well, can you explain why you told the committee one thing, but we have evidence here that you said another and so um, having had them testify once, uh, now we have uh, proof that, that in many cases their stories were incomplete or inaccurate. Uh, we're not able to uh, we're not able to uh, to further question them. With res- and then at the ethics committee, there were um, documents that would have shed light on uh, the last 12 years of speaking engagements by members of the Trudeau family, and they were due on Wednesday and committee would have seen who paid members of the Trudeau family to speak, and we would have been able to see then if any of those organizations had been given preferential treatment or sole-source contracts. But as you know, uh, Parliament was prorogued on the Tuesday, and so now those documents are uh, are locked away or we or we won't see them.
0: Couldn't you as a committee, I don't know the answer to this, I'm just asking, couldn't you continue to investigate outside Parliament and call witnesses if, as a committee, you decided to do that? Or would um, is that at all possible?
4: No, effectively, uh, the committee uh, membership uh, is uh, uh, is no more, and so once Parliament is prorogued, I see uh, the the committee's uh, mandates are um, uh, are removed and the membership is disbanded. So I'm no longer a member of that standing committee. We have no powers to. Uh, call witnesses or to compel documents. So uh, we, this really is a a grinding halt that the prime minister has put on uh, the investigations into corruption in government.
0: Your party showed what you say is evidence Justin Trudeau's claimed timeline, that May 8th was the first he heard of the We Charity possible engagement with the student grant program is untrue. Uh, a document showing the PMO was quote weighing in end quote on the We Charity issue 17 days earlier and a document which showed the names of Sophie Gregoire Trudeau and Margaret Trudeau Kemper. If the PMO is weighing in 17 days earlier, does it necessarily mean the Prime Minister would be directly aware?
4: Uh, Whether or not the Prime Minister knows what's going on in his shop, I guess is a question for him. Uh, But I would say that for his chief to say and for him to say that their office, the first contact their office had, and this was a question his chief of staff answered, uh, when I asked it of her, that May 5th was the first occasion that any member of the Prime Minister's office had engaged uh, with the Kielbergers or engaged on this proposal. Um, and we we have seen in those documents further evidence that, in fact, a senior advisor to the Prime Minister, Mr. Ben Chin, uh, had helped to uh, develop the program with the WE organization. And we know that because one of the Kielbergers wrote Mr. Chin uh, a note online thanking him for his help and so the, the program was was already uh developed when it came to cabinet on the 8th and so within a few days of that the keelbergers are thanking mr chin for his help in the development so um certainly there was more going on behind the scenes than the prime minister let people know but to your point on did the prime minister know uh, i think that um willful blindness is a, is a question as well uh when when cabinet cabinet members are receiving this proposal and in it there's a picture of the prime minister's wife and the prime minister's mother um you know uh, does the prime minister need to say this is what i want to have happen or does everyone get the idea that uh this is the family business and um this is our boss and we're going to uh we're going to go along and get along
0: yeah um do you think they've been flat out lying to you even at the committee level, where they're sworn in, you know they're sworn in.
4: Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave uh, I'll leave that conclusion to to your listener, Troy. Uh, we we have direct contradictions from the testimony uh, to what was said in committee. And when Minister Chagger was asked a direct question by me about having conversations with the with the Kielbergers about the CSSG, she said, "Nope, I I, I never spoke to them." about it uh, before, you know, April 22nd, but it turns out she had a conversation with them on April 21st. And now her claim is, well, we didn't use the words uh, Canada Student Service Grant in that order. Therefore, I did not have a conversation with them about that. But she did talk to them about the development of this program. So uh, they just didn't call it by that name. So uh, is a lie by omission is still still a lie. Uh, There's definitely um, hair splitting—that's happening uh, at at a minimum, but uh, the the veracity of what's been offered by uh, by elected officials and uh, and their departmental officials is is in question in, in more than one case.
0: Yeah, I guess if we can go back a few years, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is. Is um, another time, another another story. <laughs> <laughs> what will the new Conservative Party leader? And we'll find out tomorrow evening who that is bring to this question do you think what would you like to see as a member of the ethics committee uh and part b of this do you believe an election is inevitable shortly after the prorogation concludes or the that will start inevitably moving toward an election for the fall
4: uh so uh yeah as you said tomorrow night we have a new uh, we'll have a new leader elected by by members worth noting of course that uh more more members will have voted in electing this leader than in any other leadership contest in any other uh in any party in canadian history so pretty pretty significant so we'll brief up the new leader um whoever that may be on on monday and uh and the challenge here and and this is going to answer you know two questions or or address two of your questions at, at once on if i think an election is inevitable and and people have asked if if there's you know, if you don't have confidence in the prime minister, if you don't have confidence in, in members of cabinet, how can you not bring down the government? Well, first of all, we don't know what's coming in this throne speech. Um, and so we, we generally don't make a decision on how we're going to vote on a piece of legislation until we see it. Uh, but also the, the, the thing that I have to wrestle with and in, in my advice to the new leader um, is that if there's an election, Canadian, there will be no more hearings. We will not return to committee. no more witnesses will be called. no documents will be unredacted. We will then be left to wait and see if any independent body decides to have a finding against uh, against any of the players in this scandal and uh, very challenging for an organization, independent or not to to launch an investigation or lay charges uh, during an election and so it's it's um, It would be uh, questionable on, on, uh, uh, or it would be, uh, I don't think that, I don't think that we could count on that happening. And so triggering an election, triggering an election uh, might just leave voters with, with not quite enough information to make up their minds. And they might say, well, we don't really know what happened. And so I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, and so that's something that we need to wrestle with but you know do i think that justin trudeau should be the prime minister of canada absolutely i don't and i don't think he should have been he i don't think he should have stood for re-election when he was found to have broken ethics laws for a second twice when he when he interfered in the the criminal prosecution of his friends at snc lavalin so um there there's certainly uh you know no uh i i've got no love for for his administration but the Ensuring that people have confidence in our institutions, in our democratic institutions, um, because we'll, we'll get to we'll get to an election uh, uh, by hook or by crook. Right. So it, it, it's just it's just a question of when. And in the meantime, until September 23rd, there's no mechanism for, for anyone to trigger an election except for the prime minister to make another trip to the. Government. Yeah, it's a lot
0: to think about. It's a lot to think about. I'm glad you brought that up. Now last weekend, former British Columbia Premier and Attorney General and the former Federal Minister of Health, Jean D'Assange, in our conversation about what was going on in our country, in our parliament, I like to go to the Premier, the former Premier of British Columbia, to just talk to him about issues that, you know, we, we all wrap our heads around because I always and I've said this to him on the air and I've said this to him off the air. I always receive a thoughtful response. And uh and and, and so we were talking about the issue of ethics violations and we had just the week earlier, spoken with Mary Dawson, the former Parliamentary Conflict of Interest uh, Act commissioner, who had spoken about why she had convicted Justin Trudeau of the, the first uh, violation of the two he's been convicted of. And and I was getting on to another issue, and uh, Premier DeSange stopped me, and he said, I, I, I really think we should talk about this some more. And, Premier, thank you for coming back on the program, and I'd like to pick it up where we left off that uh, last weekend, where you thought, where you introduced the idea that there should be more than just a $200 or $500 slap on the wrist for the violator of the Conflict of Interest Act. Could you just pick that up for us again, please?
1: Yeah, I I believe that there ought to be a range of um, penalties and recommendations that the conflicts commissioner ought to be entitled and authorized to make. Um, um, one could be a more substantial fine than simply five hundred dollars. Um, you know, an, an MP makes over one hundred sixty, hundred seventy thousand dollars a year. Five hundred dollars, uh, having made a mistake, means nothing. I think the uh, the other power the um, the uh, commissioner could have uh, might be to uh, order uh, or recommend suspension, uh, temporary suspension. Uh, for a week, for two weeks, or for three weeks from the house, um, and the ultimate uh, power might be uh, a recommendation to the house, of course, uh, to have to to ensure that the member of parliament is removed by parliament um, um, from its ranks. Uh, I think that those are some of the penalties that that could go into that particular piece of legislation. Um, uh, you know, if there are no other criminal penalties.
0: You, you also, when we talked last weekend, and the first thing that you suggested, which really caught my attention, you said that if you're convicted of a, and I'm paraphrasing, if you're convicted of an ethics violation or a Conflict of Interest Act violation after a right. due investigation by the commissioner, and right. if you are convicted, then maybe a criminal charge should follow.
1: Well, perhaps it should be criminalized, I mean, in the sense that, that, um, that the uh, penalties could be... Uh, um court order suspension or or the conference commissioner um could um order suspension um uh, or permanent removal um bypassing parliament um these are these are some of the things that experts can look at um uh, some of them might be impractical because parliament is supreme it has the power to uh, allow people in and kick people out and um and uh, to make that subject to a court might be constitutionally impossible or difficult. Um, and therefore, I'm sure legal experts, when they put their minds to it, can come up with creative solutions. But, uh, you know, having uh, a $500 fine uh, two times over, or three times, or four times over, uh, is meaningless in today's world when you are um, uh, in, in a position of a, a relatively very high responsibility Important responsibility as a parliamentarian.
0: Yeah, and if you're the Prime Minister of Canada and you're not once but twice convicted of Conflict of Interest Act violations and now you're being investigated a third time, and along with you being investigated as you're now former finance minister, how do you do business inside Parliament? How do you do business with that person? How do you trust? that person going forward because i would imagine i've never been in a parliamentary position but i would imagine the element of trust has to be present at least to some degree most of the time
1: well that, that's true but what has happened over time is that the um the um you know parties um have certain amount of solidarity within and amongst uh, you know its own members um, and therefore, uh, you basically um, uh, follow the line. And if the prime minister is the prime minister, you don't uh, you don't criticize the prime minister, you don't uh, oppose him publicly, at least. Uh, and and we continue to govern, and that leads to a certain degree of uh, insensitivity, uh, um, uh, in 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 the sense that you could be. Um, convicted, if, if that's the appropriate word, by the conflicts commissioner, or you could be found to have committed a conflict of interest um, twice or thrice, nothing happens to you. Theoretically, you could do it 10 times and still be the prime minister of the country. Uh, I think that the political parties have to become little more demanding um, themselves um, of their leaders and of, of their ministers.
0: How often does that happen when you in, in, in a caucus in a uh, in a national caucus? And I, were you uh, were you in, in in government at the time that John Nunziata was elected? And 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 no, okay. No. Well, John was John came into my studio. which takes us back to nineteen ninety three when uh, Mister Trachtenberg cornerstone promise was the elimination of the goods and services tax a huge right. issue at the time and john came into the studio and he said i'm not going to vote for this because if they don't rescind it then we've broken a promise to the electorate and he didn't he voted against the government on the finance bill and he was expelled from the liberal party he knew that, that was going to happen how frequently does someone in the ranks stand up to the leader or a substantially powerful cabinet minister does that happen
1: uh Very rarely in my time, both provincially and federally, very rarely.
0: Is the cabinet table a table of equals or
1: not? It is supposed to be, um, but it is not. Ultimately, um, and some premiers and prime ministers have said this privately, that uh, um, they wield the, uh, the final vote, the veto. Um, although uh, they're supposed to be just first among equals, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, ministers so, that are powerful, and of course the prime minister, they carry the day generally speaking. In theory, and, we, can, and we in can't in practice, speak we, because because I mean you know there are no votes in cabinet usually. Yeah. <laughs> no, discussion. I'm just saying in th- in,
0: theory, in theory then, because we don't know what happened at the cabinet meetings um, or the we story. The Prime Minister, again, In I'm, I'm, just, I'm just supposing, presupposing it could have happened. The Prime Minister could, because he was at the meeting and he shouldn't have been there, and he admits that, he could have had the ultimate say. Everybody at the, at the table, other than Justin Trudeau, could have said, no, I don't think we should do this, and if Justin Trudeau said, yes, I think we should, it would have happened, right? Absolutely. Premier, what are your thoughts on Mr. Trudeau proroguing Parliament this week and his timing?
1: Well, I mean, you know, for a reasonable observer, it it would be reasonable to conclude that he um, simply did this to um, avoid uh, scrutiny by the committees that were looking into we and related matters. Um, Because if that was not the purpose, he could have simply prorogued uh, two hours before resuming parliament again in September. Therefore, the committees would have continued working. Uh, till that day, um, so you know I, I think that the, he obviously uh, says that um, that he is allowing the um, House to um, vote uh, as a matter of confidence on the throne speech. Uh, and that's an opportunity for people to defeat him if they so wish. Um, but that argument doesn't it uh, doesn't deal with the the fact that the committees have essentially been disbanded. As of this moment by the um, by the prorogation and and they may or may not come back into existence in the same way
0: you know michael barrett who's the conservatives you know the conservative mp and critic on the ethics committee and i asked him what the likely in the last hour i asked him whether he thought an election was going to take place after their leader is announced tomorrow and the parliament resumes in september will we be Inevitably, uh, seeing the Conservative Party push for an election and dragging, well, they won't have to drag the BQ along. They may have to drag the NDP along. I don't know how that's going to work out. But he said there are some considerations, and one of them is that if there's an election, that would pretty much end the parliamentary investigations into the behaviors that are now being investigated by those finance and and, and ethics committees. So there are many factors involved in what happens going forward. What are your thoughts about what happens with a new conservative leader tomorrow who's going to have to make his presence or her presence known fairly quickly uh, and where that may lead for the balance of, of the year.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, if, if um, you know they have the right leader, and I don't know who the right leader would be out of the four, um, but if they have the appropriate leadership, um, they'll get a bump in the polls, at least on a temporary basis. And then they'll have to work um, hard to sustain it. In terms of what happens when you return on September 23rd, uh, it is my sense that the NDP is in no shape and has no desire to defeat this government. Um, the um, NDP leader has spoken very clearly that, uh, you know, that, that, that he's not interested in, in defeating the government. Um, if if he gets certain wishes fulfilled. Um, and therefore, I don't think there's a chance of the government being defeated. And I think Mr. Trudeau knew that, and that's why he took the chance that he did.
0: Is Mr. Trudeau in any difficulty with his party? Or could he be depending on what, these, if there's no election, then the, part the, the committees will likely resume, maybe even with the same people at the same place, uh, as I understand it. Could the Prime Minister find himself, his own leadership, be in jeopardy?
1: He could. Um, if if the drip-drip of the WE charity uh, matter continues and all of the other news uh, about the spouse of the um, chief of staff and, and other stories uh, from Mr. Um, Morno's camp um, that are now beginning to surface... Um, you know, if, if they continue, that would undermine, uh, that could undermine um, irretrievably the authority of the prime minister and his leadership. And, and that's a chance that he takes um, with, um, with not calling an election. And calling an election, um, he may face a defeat. Who knows what happens in, uh, in a 35-day election?
0: Interesting uh, question from a caller. How can or will other countries view or trust us with these ethics violations that the Prime Minister has been found guilty of and some of the other uh, incidents following him? Does this affect Canada's credibility on the international stage?
1: You know, I, I don't suspect that it would uh, in the sense that, that um, they know that we have a rigorous and a vigorous democracy and we have laws. And obviously within the laws, The prime minister can't be suspended and can't be fired. And, you know, one has to look at what happens not just in the five or six countries that we call five eyes, but look beyond. And and the the misdemeanors and the offenses committed by leaders all over the world, um, many of them are much worse. And therefore, relatively speaking, I mean, Canada would probably escape unscathed in the eyes of much of the world, uh, despite these. And these are uh, obviously very serious issues because if you want to have um, a a country known uh, to be governed ethically and honestly, and a country that's honest and ethical uh, in terms of all its people, then you want to make sure that your leadership is in the hands of people who aren't continually um, violating Ethical guidelines or principles that are enshrined in the law? One of
0: the most fundamental questions, I think, is how do situations like this, and I wonder how much of a consideration this is within the uh, within the inner circle of major political parties? What is the impact on the voter, on the individual voter, on the individual Canadian, who I think is increasingly I, I mean it's just my experience doing what I do for a living, uh, is increasingly cynical about the political process, just feels you can't trust them. They'll lie to us any time that it's to their convenience. And if Mr. Singh and the NDP were to strike a deal with the the liberals, and the NDP were to say, well, look, if you give us this, we will not defeat you, we'll not help the conservatives and the Bloc Québécois to defeat you in any non-confidence vote, that would only raise the cynicism bar in, in, in this country. Does that matter to political parties?
1: Well, it should. I don't know how much it does um, to the collective. I'm sure it, it matters to uh, some or many individual MPs um, as they roam the halls of Parliament or uh, their own writings. Um, but the fact is that, um, that, you know, for the last many years, uh, as long as I've been around politics, there has been this refrain from ordinary people, quote unquote, yeah. you're all the same.
0: Premier, Uh, I'm sorry. I'm guilty of not having even looked at the clock because I was enjoying our conversation so much, and I'm way over time. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking to us again. Thanks so much. Always great. All the best. If you go to realrecovery.ca, you'll find the task force for Real Jobs, Real Recovery Report, which outlines the path for Canada's pandemic economic recovery. And they're saying some 2.2 million new jobs will be available by growing the natural resources sector. And uh, First Nations business and labor organizations participated in this uh, particular task force effort. And uh, joining us on the show to speak about this, Stuart Muir is the executive director of ResourceWorks.com. Stuart, good to have you with us.
3: Afternoon. Thanks, Roy.
0: And uh, Chief Karen Ogan is CEO for the First Nation LNG Alliance, former chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and is currently a council member for the nation. Chief Ogan holds the Natural Resources, Energy and Economic Development Portfolios. Chief Ogan, good to have you with us. Thanks for the time.
5: Yes, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Stuart, an overview, please. Uh, just give us a brief overview of what the task force recommendations are to fuel Canada's post-pandemic economy
3: yes well we know that coming out of the global pandemic canadians want an economic restart that is green and works for them and as it happens it's right in front of us right under our noses in the natural resource sector and by saying natural resources primarily we looked at forestry energy mining related manufacturing which is a big part of that as a way to understand how we could recover for the whole country i mean from coast to coast to coast so um because we have an unmatched array globally of natural resources here this is the driver for national prosperity at the same time as making the country what a lot of people want to see and should want to see i think a world leader in the environmental protection technologies that allow us to be uh, you know competitive in that regard
0: and you really had a diverse group of uh, organizations and individuals on the task force and supporting your conclusions or their conclusions well,
3: Yes, and I'm really proud that so many groups came together. You know, it's it's more usual for individual industries to, you know, get out there on, a, on their own. They've got so many issues that they're challenged by. But we were able to bring together the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, the Boilermakers, Iron Workers Canada, the Quebec Building Trades, the Forest Products Association, the the uh, Petroleum Producers, uh, all kinds of groups first nations as well which which really says this is a moment where canadians are focusing on what matters they're willing to put aside the you know regular business and say okay how can we build the recovery because yeah. it's not going to be easy
0: no and look natural resources is really what canada has in abundance and if it's properly uh, handled and and uh, and developed and and responsibly done it's a tremendous opportunity for this country to fund what is going to be a very expensive recovery. Uh, chief Ogan, what is your position as CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance and former elected chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation about engaging natural resources to the benefit of indigenous peoples as well as the national economy?
5: Well, I think that there's uh, a lot of things at play here um, uh, that are key factors. One, um, I think... I'm sure everybody's heard that on drip term, um, which relates to rights and title. Um, I, am sure that all of those pieces, uh, need to be part and parcel of, of the package when dealing with Indigenous people, because, you know, on, when you look at the Indigenous landscape, we're dealing with poverty issues, socioeconomic issues. And so, you know, it's, it's time that, that we become, uh, players at the table, uh, that, uh, you know, to help us close that gap of, of, uh, poverty, we need to be, uh, party at the table with a fair and equitable piece of the pie, to put it bluntly. I think that that's our way forward to, um, work with Indigenous people across Canada. And I, I, I think that's the way forward. It has to be sound, it has to be, um economically charged for us and that would sort of help the indigenous communities with dealing with their socioeconomic issues so i think that one key aspect of it um i think that aside from the other pieces um uh just as i'm thinking uh, there's the whole equity ownership piece that that comes along with it uh and Really making sure that uh, when we talk about economic reconciliation in a meaningful way, that means um, you know when agreements are done that there's no loopholes or or created loopholes so that First Nations aren't party to the table. I, I'm I'm seeing that and I'm you know watching, uh, listening, um, observing on how. Projects are unfolding, and so they really need to be fair across the board. Um, I, I think for most, most to buy in, uh, a lot of the indigenous communities see our role as stewards of the land, and that um, we need to be able to um, ensure that we're taking care of the land, and at the same time, um, ensuring that any resources being extracted are done responsibly. So I think that's another key factor. And um, I think the meaningful employment and training piece is also another factor. Uh, you know, uh, I, I sat at the Premier's LNG working group table and we said these same exact words that uh, when we say meaningful employment, that means uh, we're creating careers and not just jobs. And I think that mm-hmm. could go across the board for all Canadians. But yeah, I think absolutely. When, when, you, when you get the buy-in from the Indigenous communities, I think, and uh, fair across the board, then, you know, we're moving forward. Um, but I think all of those pieces, um, what does economic reconciliation mean? I think those are really key principles that every level of government and Every industry needs to realize that and understand that that right. these principles of trip aren't going away, and we must include them in every factor of our our uh, projects or businesses and what have you. So I think, yeah, no, I, I see, so and I
0: see that I see that with the results here, of the uh, with the task force, that there is really a concerted effort being made and uh, agreed to. That there is opportunity for everyone, but First Nations participation. And, and signing off and agreeing to these efforts is, is critical. Uh, Stuart, one more question for you. Everyone is and will increasingly be looking for long-term and sustained growth and positive economic impact and with cross-sector support again. Can you speak to that from the task force's perspective um, about, about long-term and sustained growth?
3: Yeah, I mean, we had the manufacturers as part of this, Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association, which was one of the voices that brought, I think, this into light. Because when you talk, let's say, about the oil sands of Alberta, or you talk about potash in Saskatchewan or diamond mines in the north, you're you're talking about a lengthy supply chain that goes all the way into the greater Toronto area, into Montreal. It affects the biggest cities, in the country because there are uh, manufacturing jobs, transportation and logistics, mm-hmm. finance and marketing, all of this stuff is tied to the resource sector. And one of the unique things about it that is different from say automotive or uh, other parts of the economy is that natural resources are completely under the control of of Canada, you know. They're the, the resources themselves are located in Canada. Any work done on them has to occur in Canada. Right. And so right. the, the potential for that to benefit Canadians for a long period across the whole country is very high.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.